The 55th Annual Tony Awards, sponsored by Visa, the only card accepted at the 2001 Tony Awards. Visa, it's everywhere you want to be. And by New Dove Daily Cleansing Cloths for soft, hydrated skin. Hello, welcome back to My Little Tony's. Yes, welcome. As we continue to unpack the 2001 Tony Awards. Before we get into the full Monty, I, looking at my notes now, I want to talk a little bit more about the PBS section of the broadcast because I think there's a lot of uh, stuff that's neither here nor there that I kind of want to talk about. I thought it was cute the way that, you know, Nathan and Matthew were do sort of like the British uh, kind of masterpiece theater, like mm-hmm. highbrow introduction. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> Welcome to the PBS portion of the 2001 Tony Awards. The classy, dignified portion of the telecast. Before we move over to CBS and start voting people off the island. <laughs> And I also thought that like the pre- the presenters were having a lot more fun. Like I want to shout out Heather Headley's introduction to the best orchestrations category where she does. Um, for, first, she's like, I didn't even know what an orchestration was. <laughs> it's my pleasure this evening to present the Tony for best orchestrations. Now, do you all know what an orchestration is? Thought not. Until last year, neither did I. However, allow me to demonstrate. Maestro. Summertime and the living is easy. Now, that's Gershman's summertime without orchestration. (laughs) (laughs) And now. like you know what that's why you got the tony you're you're willing to go for the big swings the one other thing i wanted to talk about is i you know i feel bad calling out the woman who does the uh announcements like in the middle of the show when someone wins the tony and she's like this is so-and-so's first tony award blah 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 because she like you know i feel like that's a hard job sometimes she messes up but in this one she literally called it a tourney award (laughs) this is mr wagner's third tourney award i don't know i thought all of the you know the edited the montage segments were very cute they all had fun with it david yazbek was in the bath for his mm-hmm. <laughs> all right should we get into the full monty yeah let's after seeing david yazbek in the full monty in the I- bath. <laughs> <laughs> okay so 
The Full Monty opened October 26, 2000, closed September 1, 2002, after 770 performances. Book by Terrence McNally, music and lyrics by David Yazbek, directed by Jack O'Brien, choreographed by Jerry Mitchell. And the synopsis is, in this Americanized musical stage version, adapted from the 1997 British film of the same name, six unemployed Buffalo steelworkers, low on both cash and prospects, decide to present a strip act at a local club after seeing their wives' enthusiasm for a touring company of Chippendales. One of them, Jerry, declares that their show will be better than the Chippendales dancers because they'll go the full Monty, strip all the way. As they prepare for the show, working through their fears, self-consciousness, and anxieties, they overcome their inner demons and find strength in their camaraderie. You know, I think one of the biggest things I learned from doing this podcast is how many musical books Terrence McNally had his mitts all over. Yeah, and I think that that's the funniest thing about it is that like these he's really run the gamut from like some like very weird projects (laughs) yeah i feel like almost every episode we've done so far he has been represented as a book writer like spanning so many decades it's very uh you know good for him this in the rink maybe feel like the most on brand for his style as like a playwright. It's interesting because like the narrative around this was really like the underdog that was crushed by the producers. But this actually, you know, it ran two years. It recouped its investment. It wasn't like a runaway hit like they were hoping, but it wasn't like a huge flop either. And I mean, both of us have seen regional productions of it. It I know, we really blew our load on our Full Monty (laughs) stories in the Dirty Rotten Scoundrels episode. (laughs) I I mean, I want to kind of open it up with this um, New York Times quote from one of the stories about the season. In any other season, the Full Monty would have been the story. It's precisely what theater pundits have been declaring all but dead on Broadway. A new musical with a singable score and endearing characters that had critics gushing and audiences telling their friends to buy tickets. This month, it also received an impressive 10 Tony Award nominations. But this isn't any other season. This is the season of a juggernaut called The Producers. That Mel Brooks musical exploded onto Broadway on April 19th, breaking box office records, wowing critics, and winning a record 15 nominations. Suddenly, the full Monty seemed like yesterday's news, much the way Chicago was eclipsed by a chorus line in 1976. In the second guessing over Full Monty, Mr. Law admitted that its first advertising campaigns might have confused its potential audience over what the musical was really about, implying male nudity, which is a minor and obscured moment at the end. That was a problem they had from the beginning was that it was maybe turning off its potential straight male audience by being like, this is a sexy naked man show. I mean, it's funny because it's like considering how gay most musicals are. (laughs) Like, I would say that this is like a pretty overwhelmingly straight, straight musical. Yes. Um, And it's funny that like there is this like one element of it that like would turn off straight men from seeing it. Yeah. And there were stories like, you know, where people were like, I, you know, I'm talking to men all the time that are like, my wife dragged me here and I loved it. But going back to sort of the original movie, so they made kind of the bold choice of um, turning this like very British indie into like setting it in America. And like even the title, The Full Monty, is not really like an American phrase. Mm-hmm. Like I think Americans only know it because of the movie. And I, I was looking at the Wikipedia page for The Full Monty and I kind of want to read it because it's short and I think it's very funny. So The Full Monty is a British slang phrase of uncertain origin. It means everything which is necessary, appropriate or possible. The works. Similar North American phrases include the whole kit and caboodle, the whole nine yards, the whole ball of wax, the whole enchilada, the whole shebang or going whole hog. <laughs> 
Hypothesized origins of the phrase include Field Marshal Montgomery's preference for a large breakfast, even while on campaign, a full three-piece suit with a waistcoat and spare pair of trousers from Leeds-based British tailors Montague Burton, or gambler's jargon, meaning the entire kitty or pot deriving from the card game called Monty. I thought that was kind of, maybe that's, you know, a little bit of a tangent, but I thought that was uh, interesting that nobody really knows where that phrase comes from. But I would have loved it if they had called the Americanized version the whole enchilada. I feel like I the kit and caboodle. <laughs> I mean, we already have the whole nine yards. <laughs> no, I think that like the move from, you know, working class UK to Buffalo, I mean, it, I think it works. I think it works too. And like, I definitely have my reservations about it, but like, I liked it a lot more revisiting it this time than I did when I saw it originally. And in retrospect, it's kind of like, well, you know, I was like an 18 year old girl, like Mm -hmm. Sondheim snob seeing it with my father, maybe not like the ideal scenario. Like, I think, I think my mind has been like opened a lot more since then. I don't know. I kind of feel the same way about this as I do about a lot of Yazbek's scores where it feels like it's it's trying too hard to like convince me of something there's like this sort of vulgarity and like machismo that you don't see in a lot of broadway scores your hands are rough your back is hairy your talk is tough your smell is scary here's what you're not you're not a fairy no you're a beer drinking real life man when the beef comes out, you do the carving. You hate Tom Cruise, but you love Lee Marvin. You're a man, and that's a bonus. Cause when you're swing and you're cojones, you'll show them what testosterone is. Cause you're a boot wearing, beer drinking, Chevy driving man. Well, this is going, this was going to be my what, but I think it's relevant to the discussion now, so I'm going to bring it up. So I visited David Yazbek's personal website <laughs> with the title All That Yaz. Nice. Love it. <laughs> I think his bio on his website speaks to um, what you were just saying. I was born in NYC. I grew up playing in bands. I've made five albums so far. The Laughing Man, Talk, Damacus, Tape Recorder, Evil Monkey Man. <laughs> I Love Your Sister. I'm coming clean here. I've made music and lyrics for five Broadway shows. I need to be with your sister. Please don't hit me. I've done a lot of other stuff, too. Comedy writing, film and TV writing, scoring. Please tell your sister about the Emmy Award. (laughs) You know, it's interesting. Like, I feel like, and there was a lot of press about him, like, not coming from the theater world and kind of being plucked to do this score because they were like, we need someone who's not really theatery. Like, I feel like he shares more musical DNA with someone like Billy Joel than with, you know, Rodgers and Hammerstein, Mm -hmm. which I think is right for this project and is right for a lot of the projects that he's worked on. But it's also kind of like, I don't know. You know, it's... It's interesting because it's like, I feel like musical theater is not really like the typical medium for stories about like manly men and their masculinity, Mm -hmm. (laughs) even though like part of the concept of the show is them feeling emasculated. And I feel like that identity crisis kind of comes through in the score. But I, I, you know, I like the score a lot and I think it's something like it's seen a lot of success regionally, which I think is right. And, like, I think that just in general, I think that you actually had mentioned this in the last episode. Jack O'Brien said, I think it was Steve Sondheim who talked about whether a piece sings or not. 
I love the up from the mat quality of the material. And this piece clearly sang to me. It's interesting because I would think of this as something, even though it does have like music and performance elements to it, I would think of it as something that doesn't sing because the characters are so repressed. Mm -hmm. Like, I think if I was just looking at it, it would seem that the characters wouldn't sing until the end when they're like comfortable sort of showing themselves. Mm -hmm. Like it's, you know, it's like when uh, it's like, do I hear a waltz where Sondheim was like, I wanted to do a show where like the lead character didn't sing till the end and everyone hated it. Obviously you can't have a musical where the characters don't sing until the end. So there are some interesting quotes from David Yazbek about being thrust into the, the theater scene. So he was like a huge Mel Brooks fan and now like, uh, you know, they're up against each other in this category in in the best score category. And, you know, their shows are going head to head. And he and they talk about how he like threw a spitball at Mel Brooks at some like pre Tony's event. Oh, my God. And he said, I had to resolve my hostility toward Mel Brooks somehow. And I think this may have worked. He says at the spitball episode. Then again, perhaps it didn't. I love the fact that I hopefully will get to meet the guy, but I pray that he loses and I win. I wish I was going up against guys similarly as obscure as me, says Mr. Gazbeck, a pop musician whose weightiest theater credit until now was taking a Brown University production of Hair to Boston after graduation. It's incredibly depressing to be going up against a show with intense star power and quality and the biggest hype machine I've ever seen. And he references in multiple interviews that he loves Frank Lesser, which I think actually makes a lot of sense as a touch point. Mm hmm. I always loved Lesser, he said. That unbelievably catchy little counterpoint melody line he uses in Standing on the Corner. I've applied that kind of riff to everything I've ever written in a way. I've just always thought that was really cool. Standing on the corner, watching all the girls go Occupation. Matter of fact, neither do I. Then standing on the corner, watching all the girls, watching all the girls, watching all the girls go by. So I think that Frank Lesser makes a lot of sense as his like entry point into musical theater. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, it's funny to see Frank Lesser as the father musically to like both someone like Jerry Herman and someone like David Yazbek, because like, I think that you can like kind of make a Venn diagram of like where they overlap too. Totally. And I mean, I think that's what's so special about Frank Lesser is that he was able to exist in so many different world yeah and i think that like i with a musical like this i sometimes feel like i'm listening to the cast recording and i'm like losing track of like when songs are beginning and when songs are ending or like i just totally kind of blank out but i don't feel that way with this song like i feel like each song much like in you know something like the most happy fella i think that like you can really feel points of view and scenes and narrative thrust kind of propel the score i think he did a really good job even even though i have my reservations about it like i would definitely see you know if there was like a local production tomorrow i would obviously go see it so it did make its money back But the national tour underperformed and closed early. 
But it's done very well regionally, which I think makes a lot of sense. And I think it's the kind of show that can like that is sort of like likable enough and well put together enough that it can succeed even if all of the elements are not really firing on all cylinders in your local production you know like maybe you have a weak member of the cast like maybe the direction is whatever but like the audience is still going to have a pretty good time which I think is really important unlike the producers (laughs) exactly no and I think that like It's interesting because, like, whenever you kind of have these shows that, like, call for a group of men or women that, like, I think that who's ever cast in it kind of, like, becomes, like, an author of you know the show especially in this one where it's like oh he's the hot one hot young one he's this he's that you know like i think that each of them kind of have like their thing but i think uh, depending on whoever's stepping into that role like that thing may, you know maybe changes a little bit yes that's i mean and i think that's a good segue into um people thought that andre de shields had like a real shot at the tony and it was interesting reading this all of uh, like the press about him that felt like it was kind of similar to the narrative that happened this past season with his performance in Hades Town 20 years later, which he <laughs> did end up winning. They did a little um, profile on him. In this industry, you spend so much time being anonymous that when you're hot, you're hot, he said. At a well-preserved 54, Mr. DeShields is hot all over again. There was a time I couldn't get arrested, he said, and now I've hit Pager three times. Wait, four, actually. To review, that would be when he played the title role on Broadway in The Wiz in 1975, when he starred as Viper in Ain't Misbehavin' in 1978, and now as Horace in the stage version of The Full Monty. The fourth would be his Tony nomination for playing Jester in Play On in 1997. But, you know, for 20 years in between, he got a master's degree in African-American studies. He taught um, Shakespeare at NYU. He also says, in 1987, I was performing and the Zoftig girl with long black hair came up to me and said, Mr. Wiz, Mr. Wiz, Mr. DeShields were called. And I was nice to her. I'm nice to all my fans. But little did I know that 10 years later, I'd be trying to get her attention, Rosie O'Donnell, with her own talk show. Oh my God, <laughs> that's so funny. <laughs> And they talk about how he, uh, you know, he can still fit into his Wiz costume, which if you go on YouTube, you can see lots of videos of him wearing it over the years. And he's been keeping it tight this whole time since the 70s. Well, I'm happy that he won for Hadestown rather than for his role as Noah Horse T. Simmons <laughs> in The Full Monty. <laughs> Let's see. Oh, and we mentioned we mentioned in the Dirty Rotten Scoundrels episode, but um, Tony Yaz, not Tony, David Yazbek. I hope I haven't said Tony any of these times. I don't think you have, because I remember in the Dirty Rotten Scoundrels episode, you corrected yourself. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But David Yazbek got the job because um, Adam Gettle turned it down and they were playing in a band together. And he was like, I'm not right for this, but I think this guy might be. It's interesting that this showdown was between these two very like male dominated musicals. 
And there was a funny interview um, with Patrick Wilson and John Ellison Conley. It says, despite the fact that Broadway musicals, the producers in the full Monty apart are usually driven by female stars. Neither Mr. Wilson nor Mr. Conley believes the business is particularly tougher these days on male musical comedy talent. I really think it's easier for men, Mr. Wilson said. Harder for women. There are just more rules for men. Actually, it's harder for women in all industries. Mr. Conley added, I think the business in general is harder for women. There are much more demands on women just in terms of looks, for instance. Both men should know what they're talking about. Both their girlfriends, they said, are actresses. So, you know, I was I, I was a little bit nervous that they were going to say something uh, <laughs> that would upset me. But no, they had, the, they had the right take even before, you know, people would have called them out on it. Yeah, I feel like it's funny to like see two musicals where like thinking back to when it was like kind of producers fever time in 2001 I wasn't interested in it because there weren't really any strong female roles but I think that the full Monty while it's all about the men I do think that like some of my favorite moments of the show are when the women get the stage so to speak totally and it has a really stacked female supporting cast you got Emily Skinner mm-hmm. you got Annie Golden. So Kathleen Freeman, who played the the pianist character, mm-hmm. first of all, died during the run, which I didn't realize. But also, when I was looking at her obituary, she played in Singing in the Rain, she played the vocal coach, like Lena's vocal coach. No, no, Miss Lamont, round tones, round tones. She should have popped over to Follies because they would have appreciated her over there. I mean, it's funny because it's like you saw Elaine Stritch in that role. Mm-hmm. And it's like, I it, the role seems like it was just like a characterization of Elaine Stritch. <laughs> yeah, she really has like an I'm still here light. Mm-hmm. Although I, th- I, I think her song is very fun. Her song's very fun. And also she has... I think out of anyone in the show, she has the most memorable lines. Oh, things could be better. Bet your ass I caught. Things could be better around here. Now let me just tell you something. I played for hoofers who can't hoof. I played for tone-deaf singers. And once when I insulted Frank, I played with broken fingers. So it got a very positive review from the Times... I mean, it was positive, but I think also, like, accurate. The show calculatedly pushes as many buttons as an elevator operator, but it mercifully doesn't hammer at them. With a winning, ear-catching pop score by David Yazbek and a lively gallery of performers who seem truly in love with the people they're playing, the Full Monty is that rare aggressive crowd-pleaser that you don't have to apologize for liking. Hokey, formulaic, vulgar, preachy, the Full Monty is all that, but it redeemingly tempers these traits with an honest affection. The warmth the warmth. The evening gives off has less to do with the titillation of its central premise than with its enormous goodwill. And it makes other Broadway adaptations of hit movies, Saturday Night Fever and the late unlamented Footloose, seem as blank and sterile as an unilluminated computer screen. So I think that's, you know, that's all you can hope for, for something like this. And also, like, I think that they seemed a little jaded about the Tony nominations. One of the producers of the show said this, that award is most helpful to a show that really has to establish what it is, like Contact or Fosse, because no one really knows instantaneously what those are. It's certainly helpful, but it's not harmful to not get it. 
Yeah, I mean, I think they had already, they were trying to, you know, they <laughs> knew they weren't the going to get it. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, they were like, it didn't close instantly like the other two uh, mm-hmm. Best Musical nominees after not getting anything. Yeah, no, a lot of these shows, like, you know, obviously the producers ran for a while, this ran for a while, two of the plays, Proof and Tale of the Allergist Wife, and the 42nd Street revival, mm-hmm. Rocky Horror ran for over a year. Like, you know, a lot of things this season had legs. Yeah. Okay, should we talk about the performance? Because I thought it was just a delight. Yeah, no, I loved it. And I thought that, like, where it was placed in the ceremony, it really brought the energy back. (laughs) Yeah, it really, they really sold it. I loved that they had the women planted in the audience. You need a loose lip lover with a heart of honey. Ah, You need a sex cadet when duty calls. I loved Emily Skinner's line reading of I'm his wife. (laughs) (laughs) And I liked, you know, how many people can really say that they all had their dicks out on the stage of Radio City Music Hall? Mm-hmm. Not many. I watched an Andre DeShields interview where he was talking about how like, so, you know, the way they do it is that they have, so they're like facing away from the audience. And then when they turn around to, you know, reveal the full Monty, there's just like huge, like extremely bright lights behind them. Mm-hmm. Um, so that obscure everything. But apparently if you're sitting on the sides, you can still see it. Um, and he talks about giving like a royal command performance for the royal family in England. And they were all sitting on the in the boxes. And the, like the British tabloids were like, Queen Mum sees American bum or whatever. <laughs> it's actually kind of funny, though, that you mentioned that because I think that one of my thoughts was like, was this show successful in the UK? And like, I think that it kind of didn't have it didn't really find its audience. I think that makes sense because I I feel like the UK is probably very um, has a lot of feelings about the original movie and was like, you this is not American. What are you doing? Yeah, <laughs> but it's it's interesting to compare it to the treatment of Billy Elliot eight mm-hmm. or nine years later, which is also like a very British story, like a British indie. And then they brought it. They, you know, kept its Britishness. And that was like a huge hit. So maybe this would have been more of a hit if they had kept it British. Well, I think that the men who they were trying to attract with this would be turned off by it being British. Maybe. But I mean, the movie did pretty well. I don't know. You know, it's like there's no way of knowing. It's also there's like no way that like men were going to their bachelor parties to see this. No, definitely not. But if you look, you know, if you look at the um, Wikipedia page, it's had productions all over the world pretty regularly. It is, I guess, a universal story, whether or not you keep like the cultural identity. Well, and I think that we had talked about this kind of casually, but I think that like on its surface, it like feels a little of like, I think that there feels like there's at least a superficial element of the populism that has come to be in today's world. I mean, it is interesting seeing this up against like such a Broadway, like showbiz, insidery, very Jewish, very gay. Yeah, and it's also, yeah, pretty, whereas the producers is so big on spectacle, like the spectacle of this is like people getting naked. Yeah. Um, okay. Do we have anything else? Oh, you know, I, I thought that this little quote was cute. 
Jack O'Brien was the person who got um, Terrence McNally involved. Because, and, like, his first thought was, like, oh, he, like, sometimes has plays with naked people in it. And then Terrence McNally says, I love what it says about people and friendship among men. I love what it says about body image. <laughs> <laughs> Which, like, I don't think that, like, that's really what I take from this. <laughs> you know, I do like that they have the song towards the end, like, when they're all in their underwear, where they're, like, checking out the ladies in the magazine, and they're like, wait a minute, women are going to be talking about us the way that we're talking about these women. <laughs> oh, my God. It's one of my favorite numbers. Well, we just better hope the women are more forgiving than we are. What's that supposed to mean? If they're looking at us Sunday night the way we're usually looking at them, we're in trouble. Take a look at that old feeling there, jerk with the pigeon chest. And I give that fat guy's ass a two, but I wish I had such voluptuous breath. And what about old father time over there? Yeah, sure he can dance, but I didn't pay 20 bucks to look at Red Fox skip around in a pair of blue underpants. That ain't the good. Oh, and I also liked that they cut to Gwyneth and Blythe Danner in the audience a lot, having like the goddamn time of their life in that audience, like front row during their performance. Um, Okay, so next up, we got Jane Eyre. Jane Eyre opened on December 10th, 2000 and closed June 10th, 2001 after 209 performances. Book by John Caird, music and lyrics by Paul Gordon, and there were some additional lyrics by Caird. The source material was Charlotte Bronte's 1847 novel of the same name. Charlotte Bronte's classic gothic romance is brought to life in Jane Eyre. This musical adaptation follows the independent, passionate governess Jane Eyre through her harsh childhood after being left as an orphan to an uncaring aunt through her employment as a governess at Thornfield Hall. There, she meets the mysterious and magnetic Edward Fairfax Rochester, master of the house and warden of her pupil. Though drawn to each other, they are haunted by the ghosts of Mr. Rochester's past, which threatened to destroy any possibilities of a future of love or happiness for either. You know, I kind of feel like similar to when we were talking about Little Women, we were like, I can't believe no one had made Little Women into a musical before 2005. I can't believe no one had made Jane Eyre into a musical until now. Mm -hmm. Although an opera and a new play about based on it premiered that same year. So, you know, it's definitely a source text ripe for adaptation. It also seems more appropriate to be adapted for opera than for the musical theater stage. But I think it does fall into the kind of like 80s mega musical opera crossover space of your Les Mises and whatnots. Yeah, I mean, I think it had the the Cyrano problem where it was kind of like, it's too late. 
Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, that's not what that's not what audiences want. Like they don't want a pop opera. They, it's you know musical comedy time again. But and I think like the outlier in that time, although I guess at this point it was ten years earlier, was The Secret Garden, which I think this score is very similar to. Um, and mm-hmm. I think that managed to sneak in because it was kind of a family. It had more family appeal than this one. Yeah, I think that upon my first listen to this, especially listening to the producers, the Full Monty, a class act this just feels so different and so out of place yeah but i don't know i think like for what it is like for the genre for the source material i think this is it's pretty good you know i think they did they did it the way it should have been done like it feels appropriate for you know they didn't go like the frank wildhorn route where it's kind of these like pop ballad I think my first listen to the recording, I was off put by it because of how serious it was. But I think even just listening to it before the set recording session, I was like, some of this music is really beautiful. I'm into the cast recording. I don't know if I'd ever, you know, I maybe I'd put it on if it's like a really rainy, gloomy day, you know. So, yeah, I mean, I think you can put this in with, I think it's also kind of similar to Passion. Definitely, like the source materials similar to Phantom of the Opera, although I think the execution is very different and the show was almost entirely sung through and supposedly the Broadway cast album cut out a lot um, and the, the Toronto cast album is more complete, although I only listened to the Broadway album. I think that this suffers from like a mood issue. <laughs> Um, like, like it's I think too it just, like, it's too moody it's too moody yeah and you know i think that another show that i don't know that much about that i feel like probably had a similar mood problem is uh the woman in white the andrew lloyd uh, Webber. yeah you know it's just like i think that no one wants to see like a gothic victorian novel unless it's phantom of the opera or oliver well i guess oliver isn't gothic but it's Definitely Victorian. Oliver is very high spirited, though. Yeah, yeah, it doesn't fall into the same kind of category as like brooding, brooding, dark romance. Mm -hmm. There was an article about the set design that I thought was fascinating, and that I, you know, really wish I could have seen the design because it seemed like they were really breaking. Surprisingly, they were really breaking new ground with the set design for this. And the sets were designed by John Napier, who he's a very famous British set designer. He did the set for Les Mis, you know, he came up with like the barricade and the the turntable. He did the set for Cats and Miss Saigon. So this is from, they like, I, I guess the reporter sat in on a tech rehearsal. Mr. Napier said that he wanted to achieve an atmosphere of fluidity, impressionistic, cinematic, elegant. I had a vision of objects floating through space and arriving in a scene from the most unexpected positions, he said. You see a window come in, then the window would start to travel with light still streaming through it. Furniture elements drift in separately like a Chagall painting. Elements hover in space. That's what first excited me about developing this machine. This machine is a 53,000 pound carousel suspended above the stage from which scrims and set pieces like paintings and windows drop, traverse, and revolve. Also suspended from the carousel are state-of-the-art lights which themselves move around and through which the show's more than 40 scenic slides are projected onto the scrims. The effect, when finally achieved, will be deceptively simple, but the technology behind it is a significant advancement in scenic design. While Broadway stages have been revolving for years, with Jane Eyre, scenery and lights for the first time also revolve above the actors. And whereas scenery typically arrives on a stage vertically or horizontally, the carousel allows for many more unorthodox angles. In the scene in which Jane Eyre's school friend dies, for example, the bed revolves on the stage and a window descends from the carousel and rotates with light from the carousel already shining through it, all at the same time rather than in sequence. 
So that sounds very cool. That does sound very cool. <laughs> I mean, it seems like the like there were other problems other than the physical production. And actually, recently, I think it was in Cleveland. They and like the original creative team came back and did a real retooling. And I think they cut it down from like three hours to two hours, and it was very well received. So I think you know they're still tinkering with it. But yeah, I mean, this is another one that's done pretty well regionally. And I think it's probably because, you know, you have like the name recognition of Jane Eyre, but you also have sort of like the highbrow factor of it being from like a classic novel as opposed to something like, I don't know, like Shrek or The Addams Family, where it's like, you know, people have heard of it, but it doesn't really have the baggage of being from like something more pop culture-y. It feels Mm -hmm. a little more sophisticated, I guess. Yeah, no, totally. That's a really good point. It's also just been interesting to see kind of like how long Paul Gordon had worked on this score and kind of all the different iterations and that this is still sort of like his big calling card. Yeah. And he also wrote a show based on Daddy Long Legs, which is also, uh, you know, a classic romance novel. Maybe that's not the right way to categorize it, but um, (laughs) it was off Broadway a few years ago. And I think that it was very well received. So this, I think he's kind of found his uh, his groove. Mm-hmm. And he, I guess he also has a Sense and Sensibility musical that was commissioned by the Chicago Shakespeare Theater, which also kind of feels like the right <laughs> mood for him. Well, I think that that's kind of problematic because I think it like perpetuates this like longstanding confusion of Jane Austen and the Bronte sisters. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's funny that there haven't been more musical adaptations of Jane Austen. That was something I was thinking about a lot when researching this. Mm-hmm. So a lot of people thought that Marla Schaffel, who played Jane, was a shoe-in for um, for the Best Actress Tony, and I think it was kind of seen as an upset when Christine Ebersol took it. And she, you know, she sounds great on the recording. She does not sound good in the performance, which no. <laughs> <laughs> which I think was not totally her fault. The producers of the struggling musical Jane Eyre are irate about a decision by the producers of the Tony Awards to cut more than half of the musical's planned presentation, nearly two minutes, from the CBS broadcast on June 3rd. Annette Nimzow, the lead production of the musical, said that her general manager had been informed late Wednesday that instead of a three-minute, 20-second slot on the broadcast, Jane Eyre would have only one minute, 36 seconds to perform a snippet of the duet Sirens. This is no longer in the realm of the acceptable, Mrs. Nimzow says. (laughs) We are once more in a fight for Jane Eyre's life, except this time it's with the Tony production group. So I think they kind of had to, like, reorchestrate the song and maybe change the tempo, but she... Marla, you know, God bless her. She is like not, she is like under the notes the whole time. And it's, mm-hmm. it's a bummer because it's like they really needed this performance. Yeah. But she sounds great on the recording. Mm-hmm. I mean, I also just like think that it feels so out of place, like seeing a scene from this in the middle of this telecast. It's just like, what? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, and speaking of what, we're bringing back what? <laughs> and my my what is for this show, which is that, so when the show announced it was closing, of all people, Alanis Morissette bought $150,000 worth of tickets that she, you know, gave away to charity groups to let kids see it because um, she and Paul Gordon were longtime friends and they go back to before she, you know, had her breakout success. So she, you know, kind of gave it a little... Hail Mary, but it still ended up closing. But it's like, you know, way to support your friend Alanis. Yeah, no, that's good. And it kept it open until the Tonys, which I think would have been a real nail in the coffin. Yeah. So... 
you know, we talk a lot about bad men on this uh, podcast, bad men and their crimes, but mm-hmm. I think the only one who actually served jail time for his crimes is James Barber, who played Mr. Rochester. And during the run of this show, he... Well, let me just... So let me just read. This is from the New York Post from when... So the girl came forward. She came forward in 2005, but it was for, you know, events that happened during the run of the show. Broadway veteran James Barber, who once played the Beast in Beauty and the Beast, is set to take center stage in a Manhattan courtroom today, facing charges that he seduced a starry-eyed 15-year-old in his dressing room, amid new fears that he may have more victims. Barber, who has also taken a star turn in such Tony-winning shows as Carousel and You're in Town, is charged with committing five felony counts of criminal sex acts and sexual abuse against the girl in 2001. So his accuser is a working actress. She's been nominated for Tony Awards, so thankfully she hasn't been blackballed, but it's really fucked up that he continues to work after literally going to jail for molesting a teenager in his dressing room. Yeah. And more than one, like after she came forward, another, uh, an even younger girl came forward. He served two months in Rikers. And it's interesting, I mean, not not interesting in a good way, but like looking at the character of Mr. Rochester, who's, you know, one of literature's infamous bad boys, and looking at who played him on screen last Michael Fassbender who also has a history like his ex-girlfriend took out a restraining order against him and like sued him for her hospital bills for domestic abuse and it's like what is it about this role that's like attracting these actors that also have these like real life you know extreme dark sides I mean I know what it is it's (laughs) like and like because you know even just the character I feel like ever since like since the book came out has been the subject of all of this discourse about like you know his legitimacy as like a romantic lead because it's like he's a bad boy because he keeps his wife locked in the attic yeah i think that like kind of the mythos be around it is like part of the problem and it's part of the problem why there are men bad men (laughs) running among us yeah and i mean and it's wild because it's like if you look at his history of like the big Broadway roles he's played, it's really like a who's who of like abusers and creeps. You have Billy Bigelow, you have The Beast, you got Phantom of the Opera, who also literally grooms a teenage girl. Like, <laughs> this is why cancel culture is not real, because you can literally go to jail for sex crimes against a teenager and still be employed on Broadway. Yeek. Yeah. So the review, the New York Times review was very negative. Bruce Weber called it gloomy and mundane. And he said that Paul Gordon's work seemed to be straight from the Broadway schmaltz kit of Andrew Lloyd Webber and Claude Michel Schoenberg. It did get a pretty nice review in the Post, though. Excuse me, in the Wall Street Journal. Yeah, I mean, I think, and it definitely had its fans. Apparently, its fans were called Airheads. Really? Which is not as bad as Pimpies, but... Do fans still have names? Yeah, for sure. <laughs> what are the your Evan Hansen's called? Fansons. <laughs> what? <laughs> I think that is what they're... If they're not, then they need to... Uh, they need to get on that. And obviously, we have our little cronies. <laughs> um, the one other thing, I, you know, like I was reading old Broadway World threads about this show, and something I thought was very funny was that a handful of the songs in this, you, like, lean on the metaphor of, like, you know, I've been infected with love, like, love is like a virus. And someone was like, you know, they didn't even come up with germ theory until, like, 40 years after this book was written. They wouldn't know anything <laughs> about viruses, which is now all I can think about when I listen to it. 
I feel like my major memory of it is that on Zanga, which was like a <laughs> I love this story already. <laughs> an off brandy an off brand of live journal that I think you, you couldn't customize as much. <laughs> there used to be like an option of like what are you listening to? And I feel like a lot of people whose Zangas I read would be listening to this. That tracks. And I remember the the Moody cover. I do actually really, I think the poster is really elegant and it speaks me to me. Me too. Man, why is every picture from this like two pixels big? Yeah, if there's anything that I could, after doing the research for this show and also through my job having to deal with digital pictures and digital video from like the turn of the new millennium, I would just be like, stay with analog until you figure this out because (laughs) it's so frustrating. So now we have the last nominated best musical, A Class Act, and it had the shortest run by far. It opened March 11th, 2001, closed June 10th, 2001 after 105 performances, music and lyrics by Edward Cleavon, book by Linda Klein and Lonnie Price, directed by Lonnie Price, choreographed by Marguerite Derricks. And the synopsis is, A Class Act is a quasi-autobiographical musical loosely based on the life of composer-lyricist Edward Cleavon, who died at the age of 48 in 1987. Featuring a book by Linda Klein and Lonnie Price, along with music and lyrics by Cleavon himself, the musical uses flashbacks and the device of time running backwards to retrace the high and low points of the composer's personal and professional life. So I think that I want to address the elephant in the Mm -hmm. room, (laughs) which is that it's funny to see Lonnie Price, who was a original cast member of Merrily We Roll Along and who made a documentary about the experience and the making of that show be involved with the genesis of this show and it feels so similar to that. Yes, I was thinking a lot about Merrily We Roll Along when I was listening to it and I was like, is it just because of Lonnie Price's voice that's making me think of that? I don't know. This one I, I feel very conflicted about because it's like, on the one hand... It's very, very niche, (laughs) very small potatoes, I think, very much of limited interest. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I can't like I don't want to say anything like I think the the instinct behind it is very sweet. You know, like so Linda Klein, who co-wrote the book, um, was Edward Cleveland's partner for the last 10 years of his life. And, you know, she was just trying to pay tribute to someone she really loved and, you know, honor his dying wish that he never got to see his music on a Broadway stage. But at the same time, it's kind of like, I don't know. I don't know if an autobiographical musical about him was really... (laughs) Like, I think if a huge portion of your show takes place in like the BMI workshop then you mm-hmm. you've gone too far you know you've lost a lot of people <laughs> <laughs> um <laughs> I think that my first initial reactions to it, you know, thinking about something like the Jonathan Larson project, this is like a really cool way to like work with an archive and like, especially with 
something that needs to be performed but i just like think that he maybe using an autobiographical element isn't the most interesting way for him and i was also thinking about tick tick boom a lot when thinking about how to like talk about this show and tick tick boom is not something i'm super familiar with because like this you know the subject matter of sort of like the navel gazing musical theater writer is like not very dramatically interesting to me but um, I think the big differences are, so this was not, like, he didn't write these songs to be autobiographical. They just were kind of like, what can we do with all of this? Like, let's just make it about his life. Like, he, you know, he mm-hmm. had all of these trunk songs. And Tick, Tick, Boom did start as a one-person performance piece that Jonathan Larson was doing about his life. And he has really, Jonathan Larson has had this huge, like, he's become this real iconoclast in the theater. Like, I feel like people who don't care about Broadway Generally, many will know who Jonathan Larson is, Mm -hmm. but I feel like even Broadway fans might not know who Ed Cleveland is. Like, I didn't know who he was. Yeah, and I feel bad because, like, when I do think of a chorus line, I think of Michael Bennett and Marvin Hamlish as, like, the creative forces behind it. Which is, like, you know, I fully appreciate efforts to kind of celebrate this unsung figure. But um, so it started off Broadway and it got like pretty nice reviews and then they were like let's bring it to broadway and everyone was like what Mm -hmm. um and there was an article that had the line detractors might say that the producer's love of mr kleban and his story has clouded their judgment since the show's reviews were good but not perfect typical was the one in the new york times in which bruce weber called the musical a polished frequently charming work but questions its appeal beyond aficionados of quirky theater tales so his i thought his broadway and off-Broadway reviews did a really interesting job of sort of working through all of the different like issues and elements of it. He wrote, this is from the Broadway production. A class act, a musical based on the life and songs of an unsung songwriter, something of a paradox in itself, made its first appearance last fall on the tiny second stage of the Manhattan Theater Club. Befitting its location, it was an almost bare-bones show, and it had its charms. Its major flaw was in its miscalibrated lionization of its subject, Edward Cleaven, who was best known as the lyricist of A Chorus Line, but who never realized his ambition to write both the words and music for a Broadway show. When the producers announced they would fulfill his dream posthumously, it seemed a mistake on two counts. For one thing, how would such a modestly conceived tribute, with only eight actors and without a hint of spectacle or even much scenery, fill a Broadway stage, much less meet the expectations of extravaganza-trained audiences? And for another, it added a note of hubris to a show that had already oversupposed the appeal of its navel-gazing. A neurotic, witty, irritating, grudge-holding perfectionist whose gifts were were nearly but not quite first-rate, Kleban was, evidently, a theater character, beloved by theater insiders who, among other things, admired how he poured his own life experiences in his storytelling songs. And except for the songs, all Kleban's own, a class act was written, produced, and directed by his friends and enthusiasts. It felt highly personal to the creators and, as a result of inefficient interest to, not, to anyone not instinctively sympathetic to the travails of show business. And then I also want to tie in this part from the Off-Broadway review. Their belief that Kleban was an unsung or at least undersung talent is plain here, but because Kleban never matched the achievement of a chorus line and never realized his dream of writing the music and lyrics of his own musical, the show mostly addresses the condition of being almost great but not great, accomplished but not celebrated, driven, passionate, and gifted but not sublime. This is a poignant and time-honored theme. Remember Salieri and Amadeus, and in its contemporary idiom here, it can't help but strike home. But of course, Amadeus was not built on Salieri's music. Near the end of a class act, Sophie, the woman whom Ed has loved and lost and who remains his guiding light, says to him, what if your music isn't as good as your lyrics? 
Hearing this truth spoken aloud, which Ed knows but has never admitted to himself, infuriates him. It's an effective dramatic moment, but it's a revelation for the audience as well. So what have we been doing here for the past two hours? <laughs> <laughs> so that was kind of on my mind while I was listening to it. Although I thought I thought the on the cast album, I thought the actors sold the hell out of it. I thought there were some very charming and very fun songs on it. Yeah. I mean, I just think that this has been echoed many times in almost any press that has been about it, where it's like, this is fine for like downtown or like a small 54 below type setting. But like, I just can't imagine ever thinking that this would be like the type of thing that's like, no, if like just more people knew about it, they would like yeah. want it. It just seems like bad producing to think that this would ever find a wider audience. Maybe they just like thought that they just wanted it to get to Broadway and they're like, whatever. I mean, I think that probably is what it is, where it's like, that was his goal. That was, you know, what he wanted. And it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if it's a flop. Like, you know, Mm -hmm. he made it. He finally made it, which I think is very moving. And like, you know, I'm glad that they did it. But it's also kind of like... You guys lost all your money. Well, it's also kind of funny, too, uh, that this is the same season as Proof, because I mm-hmm. feel like Linda Klein like used her apartment as like an archive of all of his stuff. Right. Um, I think that was very telling. Yeah. I mean, honestly, like if my boyfriend died, I would probably do some crazy shit like this, too. So it's like, I get it. I get where she's coming from. <laughs> but... but no, I feel like the recording is really, um, really, I liked it. Yeah, I liked it too. And I think this has been done, this has had some regional productions. I don't think it's as popular as Jane Eyre or Full Monty, or The Full Monty. But it, it also has like a very um, sort of star-studded cast. Yeah. Like it had Randy Graff, Jonathan Freeman, Carolee Carmelo, Julia Murney, Sara Ramirez joined on Broadway. Um, and that was my favorite part of the Tony performance was when she like said her line and he was like, thanks, Felicia, which I think is like a very fun um, riff on <laughs> on by Felicia. You know, if you want to if you want to evolve, like you don't want to dismiss Felicia. You want to show some gratitude for the Felicia in your life. Maybe, you know, may- bring a little thanks, Felicia, into the mix. Way to go, Ed. Thanks, Felicia. See, I told you. Yeah, no, the Tony perform the performance felt like a little strange. I'm very conflicted about it. Yeah, no, I'm happy it exists. And I do think that I almost think that like, if I didn't know that it was about the guy who wrote the lyrics for a chorus line and was like, kind of like a mockumentary type of thing about like a fake person, um, I would actually be more interested in it. (laughs) Like in this profile about it, during a recent interview in the living room of her Upper West Side apartment, which also serves as a Cleban archive, Miss Klein emphasized that she wanted to paint a warts and all portrait of her subject. Thus, the fact that the short, balding, and bearded Cleban was prone to phobic episodes is very much part of the story. Like compelling the crew of a crowded jet to return him to the gate, even though the plane was approaching the runway, or being too frightened to ride elevators to high floors. Aware that his neuroses were getting the better half of him, Clayton interrupted his studies at Columbia for half a year in 1958 to have himself institutionalized. Right. Like, I think he's an interesting character. And I think that, like, but I think if he was not working in the musical theater, like, a musical would not be the medium that you would use to tell his life story. Yeah, he sounds like Monk. (laughs) (laughs) Um, One thing that I do want to 
call out, though, is that in his will, he established um, the Cleveland Foundation, which grants a prize in musical theater, which gives $100,000 over two years to promising librettists and lyricists. And it's been given out since 1991. And it's been given to, you know, all of our favorite people. You know, I don't want to... Yeah. <laughs> I don't you know like he's definitely I think he's someone whose legacy deserves to be celebrated. I don't know if this was necessarily the right format. I think that that is the right road to take. Also, you know, he was accomplished. He won the Pulitzer Prize, he won a Tony. Yeah, maybe it would have been better as like a song cycle or like a more of a review format. Who knows? Yeah. The cast album is definitely worth a listen, I would say. Yeah. No, I think that my biggest what about it is that it made it to Broadway. But, you know, (laughs) I get it. I get it. I feel like if I died, I would want... I would be I would feel very touched if you and the people in my life did <laughs> something of this. Well, you better start uh start writing some songs, getting your trunk together. Yeah, and I would be okay if you like performed it at Dallas BBQ or something. <laughs> <laughs> I don't need Broadway. Okay, you just got to put that in your well. Yeah. <laughs> you wished that we could take him home and take the time to work him out. love for you to know me um okay should we move on yeah so moving on to something that i feel like has been a bone in my friendship with Anna. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man, Um, I'm getting called out right away. So there is definitely a screenshot of a G-Chat conversation (laughs) we had like four years ago where you said, I love you, but I refuse to listen to a song from (laughs) Susicle. I'm ready to defend myself. Well, Susicle was kind of arguably the biggest flop of the season. It was something that I feel like had a lot of fanfare on its arrival to Broadway, but I guess before we get too much into it, I'll give you the stats. Susicle opened on November 30th, 2000 and closed May 20th, 2001 after 198 performances. Music by Stephen Flaherty and lyrics by Lynn Ahrens, book by Flaherty and Ahrens. And it was conceived by Flaherty, Ahrens, and the uh, bane of our existence, Eric Idle. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and it was directed by Frank Galetti, choreographed by Kathleen Marshall, and obviously um, it was based on the works of Dr. Seuss. And, you know, it's kind of interesting. One of its producers was Universal Studios, which, like, at this time had opened, like, a cat-in-the-hat ride at the Universal Studios. So I kind of see it as this, like, checkmate or, like, attempted Disney, you know, cashing right. on, like, the Disney cash flow. It ended up being a huge, huge mess. Yeah. You know, somehow it was something that I managed to escape ever seeing a production of, ever hearing a song from, and that, you know, that my response to uh, to you trying to send me 
I don't even remember what. I think you were trying to send me like an amateur production of it. Yes. You know, I think, especially at this point in my life, I know so much about so many fucking musicals. I just want to preserve these little moments of innocence where I can. And and especially for this one where it was only nominated for one Tony for Kevin Chamberlain, I was like, you know, this isn't really a Tony. This is not in uh, the jurisdiction of my little Tonys and I'm still not going to listen to it. However, mm-hmm. after reading about the genesis of it, it did make me more interested in maybe exploring it. I mean, I think that I struggled to find a Flaherty and Aaron score that I think is like consistent. Like I think that even probably their favorite show of mine is Once on this Island, but mm-hmm. I even feel like there are moments of that where I'm like maybe not totally 100% sold, but I think I just love, it kind of feels like a weird game of like telephone where it's like mm-hmm. what ended up being the final product of it just like felt like such a crazy, you know, cause it was like definitely like a, a troubled production where like a lot of the creative teams were like fired and, you know, people were hired on the fly. And I think that the messages of it just like got totally mixed up. But I think that like in the review, they like kind of like compare it to something like you're a good man, Charlie Brown. Mm -hmm. And it's been interesting because I think it's had, there's kind of been a new version of it that has been rewritten and made to be a lot like your good man, Charlie Brown, where there's like no, you know, crazy sets and like everyone's not dressed like crazy Seuss people. Um, Mm -hmm. And it's just kind of told with like a simple set and like simple costumes and a simplified book. And I think that it's really found its home there and being, you know, played in like exclusively like a theater for a young audience, like children's theater settings. I was surprised at how much of the ragtime team was involved. I I knew that it was Flirty and Aaron's. I didn't realize that Frank Galati directed. And it was, you know, originally a Garth Drabinsky joint until he had to flee to Canada. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Like reading about the the evolution and how it started as like this small little sweet show that like, you know, moved all the investors to tears Mm -hmm. to this kind of like, scary overblown spectacle it was an interesting read what would you say are the choice cuts from it if i had to if i had to get into it um the biggest blame fool which is an early kind of like big production number where horton is um (laughs) it feels a little silly to even talk about (laughs) it's Um, okay i've been talking about cats nonstop for the past two weeks so nothing you know next to that this all seems totally normal in the jungle of Newell. I would say the biggest blame fool, the song Notice Me Horton. And the song Sala Salu are three of my favorites. Sala Salu. Sala Salu. Sala Salu. Sala Salu. 
and Kevin Chamberlain was the only Tony nom, and even, you know, he played Horton the Elephant, and he got a lot of good press. But I thought that this was a really interesting little um, snippet, and I thought, I kind of feel like this kind of, like, where we're at with... Um, you know, Broadway at the time, like, I think that Susequel and, like, maybe how overblownly crazy it is was a symptom of the time that we were in. Mm -hmm. This is from an article. Once upon a time, George Bernard Shaw or Thornton Wilder served as the inspiration for a season's major Broadway musical. Today, that role has shifted to the likes of Disney cartoon animators and the creators of Green Eggs and Ham. From the New Amsterdam Theater on 42nd Street, where The Lion King reigns as the biggest Broadway hit in years, to the Royal National Theater in London, where Honk, a show based on The Ugly Duckling, snared the Olivier Award for Best Musical this year. It is the fantasy world of the youngest theatergoers that has captured the imagination of the conceptualizers and bankrollers of lavish entertainments. The evolution can be traced through shows like Cats. When it began on Broadway 18 years ago, it was touted as an innovative grown-up musical. But over the years, the marketing seemed to shift. Where once the show's dominant image was that of the lithe dancer framed by a pair of cat eyes, the television commercials became filled with the images of children having their faces painted to resemble the characters on stage. When I was a child in the suburbs of New York, the big event was to go to the theater and see the thing that all the adults were excited about, said Leonard Marcus, a children's book historian and critic. I went to see My Fair Lady and the Music Man and Bye Bye Birdie. All right, brag. (laughs) That's a reflection of how child-adult relationships were in those days. These days, there's a lot more interest in what the child wants, doing things for the child's sake. We've, I'm sure we've talked about it on the podcast, but like we talk about it a lot where it is like, I felt like as a kid, so much reluctance to any sort of like child focused entertainment. I think that like, you know, I was always really curious about like what adults, like something like I remember around this time, it's appropriate. Like, I feel like I was like, what's American beauty about? Like, you know, (laughs) totally. I don't know. I mean, I think the, it seems like it has a nice message in it you know susical Mm -hmm. like you know good lessons to teach children but i don't know i gotta say a person's a person no matter how small feels a little pro-life to me (laughs) (laughs) that's true (laughs) so if they had performed which one of those would you have liked to see of the of the ones you mentioned I would say the biggest blame fool. I think that it's like the ultimate Tony number because it kind of like sets up a major plot point, but it's also a lot of the fun ensemble members like the sour kangaroo are (laughs) featured in it. Yeah, I think that like I for like a long time felt and especially in my teen years felt embarrassed for liking musicals, but maybe I was just embarrassed that I liked Seussical. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I also think that like the Cats comparison sort of extends further than like like I think it extends back to the source material of kind of these you know although I think the original cats poems are a little sillier than Dr. Seuss but they are they both have that kind of like whimsy and strangeness Mm -hmm. and these like anthropomorphized animal characters with crazy names although cats is kind of a scary sexy fever dream and that's not the direction they went with this one 
No. So, and you know, I lied. I have heard the only musical I've heard comes from the Jimmy's medleys from people who perform it because uh, uh-huh. it's very popular. It's performed all the time. So, you know, I'm sure. And I thought it was interesting that the Weislers said that it was their first flop in 30 shows that they've done. Yeah. But I'm sure they've made their money back now. I mean, it is kind of funny. I feel like on the surface, this year seems so overshadowed by the producers, yet there are so so many of these shows, I think, have had such a large regional life. Yeah, and it's been interesting, you know, like catching up on Encore on Disney Plus where like people, you know, go back and do their high school musicals. It really hammers home like the long arm that these musicals have past Mm -hmm. their initial production that like the original creators could never have imagined how many people's lives would be impacted by being in them, not just by seeing them. It's very moving. Mm -hmm. It totally is. Like it is amazing that there is like this kind of sentiment that's like, what's the future of the Broadway musical? Looking at... Broadway as like the only barometer of where the musical is at is different because it's like I think that regional productions and like school productions are really what seals the uh, show's fate. For sure. Should we do Tim's Play Corner? Yeah, let's do it. So Proof was like the big winner of the night play-wise, and it had three wins out of six nominations. King Headley II had one win for Viola Davis's performance. The Invention of Love, which was a Tom Stopper joint that we don't need to talk too much about, one, two things. And I think the one interesting thing about The Invention of Love was that I believe Jack O'Brien also directed that. He invented... He invented. (laughs) He directed both that and The Full Monty. So there was like a little New York Times piece about what kind of different pieces they are. But he he's a Jack O'Brien of all trades, as they say. (laughs) Well, he ends up I think he and he's like kind of like the interpreter of Stoppard's work. But yeah, I think that talking about proof, it opened on October 24th, 2000, and it closed on January 5th, 2003, after 917 performances, which for a play is pretty outstanding. And it was written by David Auburn, who was 31 at the time. So here's a little synopsis from the review. Proof by David Auburn, 31, revolves around Catherine, a 25-year-old whose father, a famous mathematician at the University of Chicago, gradually goes mad. Catherine knows she has inherited at least some of her father's genius and wonders if she also inherited his madness. So I actually, I read this play in high school. I took, when I was a freshman, I took a class that was called like modern American drama. And I think we read this, we read How I Learned to Drive, Angels in America, Dinner with Friends. But I remember, uh, I remember really enjoying this one. Yeah, no, I 
feel like this was very like modern American drama class. Yeah. Oh, in, yeah. Um, like I remember someone did a scene where the two sisters are fighting in my, one of my classes. But this and the other play from the season that I really loved a lot, Tale of the Allergist Wife, both have L.A. theater work um, recordings that you can listen to online. And uh, Mary Louise Parker played the role of Catherine originally on Broadway, but she was eventually replaced by Anne Heche who is on the LA Theater Works recording, and I think that she does an excellent job. And fun fact, so Jennifer Jason Lee was another replacement, and that during the run of this play is when she and Noah Baumbach met, for all you uh, Baumbach heads out there. It's kind of funny, because I feel like it might not have aged super well. I think that like people in some ways like really heralded how it portrayed mental health and like mental illness and like Catherine's question about whether her father's mental illness like affected her but it feels like a little that part aged a little poorly well you know what i thought was was interesting watching it in retrospect is that gwyneth gives the Tony to Mary Louise Parker and then she went on to play that role in the film mm-hmm. version. She was like that one's mine. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Watch your back Mary Louise Parker. And the American Theatre Wings Tony goes to Mary Louise Parker. I think in the review talking about kind of like the casting of it they do it starts out with like an interesting sort of question. Have you noticed how many well-educated characters are holding forth on New York stages? Forrest Gumpism may still be alive in the land but one thing this spate of excellent plays reminds us is that learning is desirable not least because it enriches the emotions. In case you've forgotten intellectuals are people too. Happily, this trend is being perpetuated with proof, an exhilarating and assured new play by David Auburn that turns the esoteric world of higher mathematics literally into a back porch drama, one that is accessible and compelling as a detective story. I think that like comparing the musicals to the plays, like it is kind of sort of funny. And I think that even like the tale of the allergist wife kind of has like a similar element to it. Well, and this is also like the era of like goodwill hunting and like a mm-hmm. beautiful mind. You know, this was really sort of on trend, but I guess it's unusual to have a woman in the center. Yeah, it is. I think that like it being about math like does add like an air of mystery to it since you know no one really gets (laughs) no one really knows about math (laughs) i yeah i like wonder what an actual mathematician would think of seeing it well mathematicians you know our email address i would be very curious give us your proof tapes because yeah i think that there's like a lot of the kind of twists and turns of it are kind of satisfying so i don't want to give it away on the podcast but i think it's like also the type of thing that as an outsider i feel like oh Maybe that could happen, but yeah, Yeah. maybe it couldn't. And so Mary Louise Parker won the Tony and she like, she's really serving like Anne Hathaway on Quaaludes at this ceremony. (laughs) I really am. I'm all about it. You came here once four years ago. Remember? Yeah, I can't believe you do. I was dropping off a copy of my thesis to be your dad. Jesus, I was nervous. You look nervous. I can't believe you remember that. I remember you. I thought you seemed... Not boring. Um, Yeah, and so the other one that I think is worth talking about and worth you guys reading or listening to the LA Theatre Works recording of it is The Tale of the Allergist Wife by Charles Bush, which opened November 
2nd, 2000, and closed September 15th, 2002, after 777 performances. And it follows Marjorie, the wife of allergist Ira Taub, who cannot rouse herself from a deep personal crisis until her enigmatic childhood friend Lee comes to visit. So there is like a big man who came to dinner vibes where this woman who's kind of having a midlife crisis after wreaking havoc at um, a Disney store, (laughs) her childhood best friend comes. And um, I think that like the actual Tony little snippet that they showed at the Tony's was like very fun. Yeah, Um, I loved all the play snippets they did. I I mean, I think we talked about this last last episode, but they did a really good job highlighting the plays this year. I'm going to say something very shocking. We're sophisticated people. Shock us. I can't decide which of you I'm more attracted to. (laughs) Now, Marjorie, don't get off a toast. You can't tell me you've never had a crush on a woman. A school teacher. (laughs) A playmate. The girl at the Clinique counter at Saks. She has a very aristocratic neck. I like looking at her. Haven't you ever wanted to move closer to that sales girl at Saks and stroke that beautiful neck? No, I never give it a thought. I just ask for the astringent. But also, I also think that that scene kind of like gives away like a good twist and turn. Well, I mean, with the the one flew over the cuckoo's nest uh, <laughs> performance, literally did him getting uh, like electroshock therapy. Um, but Charles Bush, it was kind of like this downtown favorite. I think that I had first learned about him because I saw Julie Halston in Hairspray taking over <laughs> Jackie Hoffman's role, and I saw that she was in a play called uh, Lesbian Vampires of Sodom. And I was mm-hmm. like, what is that about? So I like remember googling it like in 2005 and kind of like learning about him but you know it's cool that he kind of brought like his weird freaky downtown energy into this like very normal play i remember seeing is it die mommy die yes i remember (laughs) seeing that on tv like what what is this yeah but it's like kind of funny to like imagine that he is doing this like i think that even in the review of it ben brantley in reviewing it was like it was amazing but it also was basically just like a tv show (laughs) which i think is kind of fair but you know i think that this really spoke to me as like a fan of like early seasons of will and grace yeah you know i think there is something sitcom-y about a lot of like contemporary plays and it makes sense that like you know there is a lot of overlap between like playwrights you know making their money in tv writers rooms yeah i think that that's that article just did you see that article that just came out yeah yeah yeah. and also like the ethan morden article about follies was like he was talking about moss hart and he was like you know if someone like with the talent of moss hart came up to like in this current climate like the best they could hope for is like the will and grace writers room it's kind of true it is true so I think the last thing is King Hedley II, the August Wilson play starring Brian Stokes Mitchell and Viola Davis. Brian Stokes Mitchell looking very sexy with his shaved head. Mm-hmm. And the first like the first time I ever watched this Tony's, the moment where Viola Davis performs her monologue from it, that was kind of like a holy shit moment because it's like, that's something that unless you know to look for it, like you wouldn't even know that that was in there. I don't want to have a baby that's younger than my grandchild. Who turned the world around like that? What sense that make? I'm 35 years old, don't seem like there's nothing left. I'm through with babies. I ain't raising no more. I ain't raising no grandkids. I'm looking out for Tanya. 
Ain't raising no kid to have somebody shoot him, to have his friend shoot him, to have the police shoot him. Why you want to bring another life into this world that don't respect life? I don't want to raise no more babies when you got to fight to keep them alive. Yeah, and the show, it had a really quick run. It only ran for 72 performances, but it had like an amazing cast and, you know, I think has like a liter- more of like a literary appeal. I think that like a class act, like I don't think it's something that Broadway audiences really are flocking to see. Mm-hmm. But for different reasons. Yeah. Wow, and apparently The Roots used the cover of the play for one of their album covers. Oh, really? Yeah, and this is in this August Wilson century-long Pittsburgh cycle. This mm-hmm. is the one that's set in the 80s, which, you know, I think he used it as, like, a platform to talk about how destructive the Reagan administration was to African-American communities. Yeah, So he and he died four years later, so this was one of his last... Tony appearances. Okay. Yeah. Is that it? Do we have any bits and pieces? Do you have a dream threesome? Yes. My dream threesome is um, Eric McCormick, who at the time was starring as the music man, and Jane Krakowski. That's what I have, too. I really? Don't think they had, yeah, well, I don't think they had a lot of pairs presenting. I Like, I think that yeah. was the only one I even noted. Huh. Yeah, you actually, unless right. you Unless you want to do it with, uh, you know, Nathan Lane and Matthew Broderick which I do not. Yeah, that seems loud. (laughs) And very, very sweaty. Yeah, no, I think you're right. It's also crazy because Henry Winkler, he presented something and I'm like, you literally, 20 years, you look just as old as you look now (laughs) then which like doesn't make sense unless he was like already like 40 when he was playing the fonz which might be (laughs) some people find their age and they just look that age forever yeah because it also okay so he's 74 so so he was 54 i guess between 54 and 74 if you're living right yeah you probably are gonna look similar Mm -hmm. yeah he was so handsome as the fonz uh, but he was 32 when he was playing the phone, so that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I think. I think that's it, right? Do we have anything else to say? No, I think that's it. I think we we did. I think we covered a lot. Yeah, I think that the fact that the producers won so much made this easier to do. Yeah. Although I think we did still talk for a very long time. Sorry. <laughs> no, no. Don't be sorry. That's what our little cronies want. Um, okay, so <laughs> so th- so that's it. Next time we're gonna do 1963, which 1963 had a lot going on. You got best musical. You had funny thing happen on the way to the forum. You also had Oliver best play. Who's afraid of Virginia Woolf? So we might do a little bit more of a play segment than we normally do. A lot of our faves are gonna be there. You should be there too. It's gonna be lots of fun. And in the meantime, you can follow us on Twitter and Instagram. You can tweet and DM us. You can email us at mylittletoniespodcast at gmail.com. We love to hear from you. You can give us a five-star rating on iTunes if you want us to feel good about ourselves. Mm -hmm. And if you want us to feel bad about ourselves, that's not very nice. And you should examine that impulse. So thanks for listening. And we'll see you next time. Goodbye. Log on to www.tonys.org for more Tony's action.